Hi, I'm Jeff Murphy, owner and lead educator of Master Your Medics. Don't worry, your class is going to start just in a few minutes here. First, I just quickly wanted to intro introduce you to Master Medics and invite you to the Master Medics Facebook group. It's totally free. We do live classes on anatomy physiology every Monday, ECG inter interpretation every Tuesday, pharmacology every Wednesday, and finally our case study class every Friday. So there's always lots to learn and we'd love for you to, to, to join and kind of be there with us. So there's a link below this video that will allow you to join the group. Don't worry, you won't lose your spot. In this video, it's gonna quickly open up another area, so that way you can join that quickly and enjoy this class while being part of that. Now that is out of the way, here's your class, the Pathophysiology of Shock class. This was a live class that we did actually inside our Master Medics community, the community that I just invited you to. So last month, we did this class. So if you prefer the audio version, that's attached below this video as well, so that way you can listen to it on the go. You can obtain Con Ed credits with this class. If you're interested in those credits, you'll need to complete the worksheet that goes along with it. Okay, so I'll give you more details on the worksheet and how to access it following the class. Enjoy. The biggest thing with shock to understand is, well, there's a few things to understand with shock in itself. And so, but the biggest thing is to understand is that what shock is really dependent on is the perfusion of the body. Okay, the perfusion of the body is what shock is and when you have a lack of perfusion that's what you know gives shock its name is that that's exactly what shock is is that when you have a lack of perfusion to a human cells okay when you have a lack of perfusion to human cells called hypoperfusion that's where shock comes into play that's what shock is is hypoperfusion okay and so that is essentially what we're we're really dealing with okay and so just to kind of give you a more better perspective of it. Oops, I don't want a text, I want to draw. Okay, and so, okay, this is your blood vessel. Okay, and then you have cells all in here. Okay. okay. And you have obviously your blood flowing through here. Okay, in your blood vessel, the whole point is to get this blood, this red blood cells, okay, to the cells in order to oxygenate, okay? In order to oxygenate, to perfuse them is essentially what we're talking about. So when we can't do this, okay, we can't pull this off, that means that these cells are going to be hypoperfused. Hypoperfused, okay? So those cells are in shock, they're hypoperfused. Okay, that's essentially what we're talking about. Okay, and so what we're focusing on here, I'm just gonna get this out of the way for a sec. Okay, so we know it's hypoperfused. So what we're focusing on here, I'm gonna type it just so it's easier to see, is oxygen delivery. Okay, for oxygen required. Oxygen delivery versus oxygen required. Okay, so what that means, or basically in a nutshell, what we're looking at here is with the perfusion side is over here. Okay. Perfusion is over here. Okay, and so oxygen delivery is going to be dependent on how much perfusion we need. So, for example, if I'm going for a run, Okay, if I'm going for a run and I'm working out, then the oxygen requirements go up. 
which means that in order to, you know, perfuse properly, perfuse those cells properly, I need to increase oxygen delivery in order to maintain the oxygen requirements, which means I need to increase oxygen delivery to maintain perfusion. Okay, if I can't do that, okay, if I can't do that, so I have an oxygen requirement, okay, I have an increased oxygen requirement. Okay? I have an increased oxygen, oxygen requirement. So for example, if my body's in shock or if my body is, um, if my body requires more oxygen in any case, so I need more perfusion, I need more oxygen requirements, but I'm not able, okay, I'm not able to deliver oxygen to the required cells, then I'm going to have a decrease in perfusion, making it hypoperfused. Okay, that is kind of the, the key to understand. So if I can't deliver the oxygen that's needed in order to maintain the oxygen that's required, it means that I have a decrease in perfusion, which means that I'm going to be hypoperfused. Okay, and another word for hypoperfused is shock. Okay, you guys understanding so far? So we, if we have a decrease in oxygen delivery, that's below oxygen requirements means that we're hypoperfused, which means that those cells that are requiring that amount of oxygen are now in shock. Okay, so that is, uh, regardless of what type of shock that we're in, that is the end stage. Okay, is that we either have a, we have an oxygen delivery problem that's causing cells to go hypoperfused, which creating shock, regardless of what type of shock you're in, that's the end stage, okay? That's just kind of the big picture of things, okay? So let's back, erase some, some stuff here so you guys can do like that. Any questions so far? You guys follow that kind of perspective and that, uh, that idea? Give me a thumbs up, making sure that I'm on the right track. Are you understanding kind of where I'm going with this or you know where kind of where this comes from and the perfusion and hypoperfusion kind of stance? Give me a thumbs up, make sure I'm doing good there. Cool. Okay, so we have a few different types of shock. Okay. Low blood volume shock, which is also obviously hypovolemia. Okay, we have cardiogenic shock. Okay, and this is when the, the actual cardiac muscle fails, the pump fails. And then we have obstructive shock. Okay, and this would be more of there's pressure on the pump and the pump can't squeeze properly. And we'll, we'll dig deep into that guy as well. We have distributive shock. Okay, so like sepsis, anaphylaxis. Okay. Oh man. Yeah, I'm going with that spelling. Okay. And then five, we have one last one, neurogenic. So neurogenic is kind of interesting. And we'll talk about how that 
uh, how that plays in. So neurogenic, usually due to spinal trauma. Okay, so those are the types that we're gonna go through uh, later on. And so we're gonna talk about the pathophysiology. So what happens to cells when they're hypoperfused? We're gonna talk about that. Uh, and then we're gonna talk about how our body responds to shock. Okay, and how our body responds to hypoperfusion in early stages and the late stages. And then we'll get into the each individual type of shock after that. Okay, so undo that guy. Sweet. Okay, so talking about the pathophysiology of cells or how the body or what happens in the body. when our cells are hypoperfused. Okay, what happens, okay? That's what we're gonna be answering here. I'm gonna bring this guy. So what happens in the body when our cells are hypoperfused? Okay, so when we have a decrease, I'm gonna back up with that guy. When we have a decrease, Decrease in oxygen delivery. And we have a lack of perfusion. Okay, it means that our cells, okay, cells switch to aerobic or anaerobic. Metabolism. Okay, they switch to anaerobic metabolism, okay, when they're hypoperfused. Okay, because oxygen is really, really a huge requirement in order to produce ATP. Okay, so you need O2 to produce high levels of ATP, which is our cells' ability to create energy and use energy. Okay, without O2, okay, so for example, with O2, each individual cell. Okay, can create roughly 38, between 38 and 30 ATP per Krebs cycle. Okay, without O2, we can produce with anaerobic metabolism roughly four ATP. Okay, roughly four ATP. That's it. Okay, so that's something to keep in mind is that when we switch to aerobic metabolism, anaerobic metabolism, we're taking a over 1000% cut in ability to produce ATP. So that's a, a pretty substantial change as you can imagine. Okay, and so that just kind of gives you a little bit of perspective of what happens when we go to anaerobic metabolism because the whole point of the Krebs cycle, the Krebs cycle is designed to oxidize certain things. Okay, we oxidize pyruvics and we oxidize other things that are going on in their Krebs cycles as well to produce ATP, okay, in cells. And so without the ability to oxidize, okay, which means combine with oxygen, okay, we will not be able to produce that ATP, which means we're stuck with anaerobic metabolism producing ATP. Now, the problem with this is that there's a byproduct. There's actually several byproducts. One of them being lactic acid, okay? This is kind of the key word here. Another thing that it produces is 
high CO2. Okay, we know that CO2 is already a byproduct of cell or cell energy production, and so this isn't a bad thing necessarily because it'll combine um, with hydrogen ions and create weak acids uh, like carbonic acid. Okay, but just because there's so much, and when you combine with carbon dioxide, that means that you're going to have some free flowing hydrogens, and this presence of hydrogen will decrease your pH. Okay, so this is not a bad thing here, carbonic acid. What the problem is, is that the more carbonic acid that we have present, the more presence of hydrogen we have. And the more presence of hydrogen we have, the more acidotic the body gets. Okay, and with a combination of lactic acid and presence of hydrogen, we're gonna have a pretty significant change in pH. Okay, so that's pretty key. So our body, okay, so our patient's body is gonna be in a metabolic, acidosis because of this switch into anaerobic metabolism and high productions of lactic acid and high productions of CO2, creating more presence of hydrogen, dropping the pH, and it's all due to a metabolic reason. Okay, so that is what happens when we have a switch to anaerobic metabolism of lactic oxygen, okay, all due to a perfusion problem. Okay, the inability to deliver oxygen when oxygen is required. We have a decrease in perfusion, which changes the whole way our cells produce energy. They're starving of oxygen. They're starving of perfusion. So that is what we're seeing with cells as our body you know, progresses further and further into shock and more and more into a perfusion problem. Okay? So we're going to see more and more of this type of anaerobic metabolism switch. Now, you would see this more into peripheral cells. Okay, and our body reacts to um, this type of situation. And so this is, doesn't just happen in spiral and spiral out of control without our body responding to it. So we're going to talk about that response in a sec here. But I wanted to talk about what happens to the body okay, as shock develops worse and worse. And this is what happens. We have a significant production of lactic acid and a significant increase in CO2, which causes an anaerobic, or sorry, which causes a metabolic acidosis, all due to the switch into anaerobic metabolism in the cells because of the lack of oxygen or lack of perfusion. Okay, so I'm just going to switch to the Facebook uh, live, make sure you don't have any questions. So any questions so far with what we're talking about here? Okay, I'm just going to switch back, give you guys a few seconds to ask questions. I'm just going to refresh. Give me a thumbs up if you're good. Ask a question if you're not, so that way I see it and we can answer it now. This is good. Right on. I'm starting to recognize you guys from your Facebook pictures. It's funny. Awesome. Looks like everyone's good so far. Perfect. Switch you back here. Ah, where's my board? There it is. I almost used a real pen on my drawing board. That would have been kind of weird. I'm just going to erase some of this stuff. Okay, so we know what's going on with cells as we get further and further into a lack of perfusion. That's good. That's good news because it's important. 
what tea am I drinking? It's called sleepy time tea. <laughs> it's just a herbal tea that doesn't have any caffeine in it. That's all it is. It's uh, called sleepy time tea. It's in a green box. You can get it at Savon. Or I think I got it at uh, Sobeys as well one time. But it's, yeah, it's in a green box. It's a huge brand. I cannot remember the name of the brand. But it's uh, a non-caffeinated tea, so I can go to sleep and wake up at 4 a.m. tomorrow morning. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. So, we know that. That's all good news. Direct you over here so I can see my notes as well. Pardon me. Okay, so how... Oh, i got to get rid of more because it's going to be a big topic. So, I'm going to get rid of this. I need all the room I can get for this next thing. And the question is, how does the body respond to shock? Okay, or I'm going to say decreases in perfusion. How does the body respond to decreases in perfusion? Okay, we know that hypoperfusion is shock, so I'm just going to keep using the word perfusion so we don't get confused and because it's a lot easier to explain things when I'm using the right um, anatomical words. Beauty. All right, so let's talk about this guy. So how does the body respond to shock? Okay, so it really has a lot to do with mean arterial pressure and cardiac output. Okay, so cardiac output would kind of obviously interchange into mean, ar or mean arterial pressures, but that's basically where we're starting. Okay, so this is something that our body or responds to. So let's, talk, let's kind of draw some stuff out here. So give me two secs. I'm going to draw up a couple of things. I'm going to draw out a heart. And then I'm going to draw out the brain over here. Draw out the brain. So. Okay, that's the brain sort of uh you guys get the idea okay and then i'm gonna also draw out two other important structures for this portion is the aorta and the aortic arch and the descending branches okay so when we have a change in perfusion it's usually due to a, a change in mean arterial pressure without a significant or of a mean arterial pressure without it we cannot perfuse the organs properly and so if we can't perfuse the organs properly then obviously they're going to be hypoperfused and they're going to go into shock okay and so our body is constantly measuring mean arterial pressure and making sure that mean arterial pressure is maintained high enough that organs can be perfused that is key in making sure that our body doesn't spiral into shock without it you know being able to compensate for that okay so that's why we have compensated and decompensated states of shock okay so the way that it does that it actually has what we call baroreceptors or pressure receptors okay baroreceptors are pressure receptors you find those in two separate places okay, i'm going to change up the color so you can see it uh, let's make it let's make it lime green okay so you have baroreceptors or pressure receptors here okay here in the aortic arch as well as okay 
your carotid arteries. Okay, so these guys are all baroreceptors. Okay, these are all baroreceptors. Okay, and again, these are pressure receptors. Still getting used to this guy. Okay, pressure receptors. And so when we have a decrease in mean arterial pressures, our baroreceptors will respond. Okay, and so it actually will send messages. Okay, so for example, the, um, the baroreceptor in the carotid arch, or sorry, the aortic arch, I'm gonna change the color so you can see what's going on here. This guy is from the vagus nerve, the vagus nerve. Okay, the vagus sensory nerve. Okay, and then these two will send signals through the glossal pharyngeal. Sorry if my spelling's not right, but glossal pharyngeal nerve, sensory nerve. Okay, you might recognize these names if you've done a couple of neurology classes. Okay, so glossal pharyngeal nerve and vagus nerve. Okay, so both of these baroreceptors are going to send signals to a very well-known place in the midbrain, okay, or the brain stem. Give you a second to decide what that name would be. The medulla. Okay, medulla is where these guys go. So we know the medulla more as a respiratory center. They have cardiac receptory centers as well. Okay, so the medulla receives signals from the baroreceptors in the carotid arteries and the aortic arch, from the vagus nerve and the glossal pharyngeal nerve, okay, sensory nerves. They receive signals and they go to the medulla, okay. And the medulla, like I said, okay, I'm just kind of building a cross section. That's a bad cross section, hold on. Undo, undo, okay. So I meant to make it more, okay, like that. Okay, so this is more of a cross-section of the medulla. So it's normal, it's the same on both sides. And then you have, on both sides, you have a cardiac inhibitory and cardiac accelatory centers. Okay, so let's make dark blue accelatory. Okay, okay, accelatory. And then you have the light blue. These are cardiac inhibitory. Okay, cardiac inhibitory centers. So basically, just to give you a perspective on what each individual one does, okay, as far as the nervous system goes, the accelatory centers. Sympathetic nervous system, and then this would be your parasympathetic.
Okay, so you have your parasympathetic and your sympathetic. So excitatory centers are driven by your sympathetic nervous system, and then your inhibitory centers in your medulla are driven by your parasympathetic nervous system. Okay, and so in this particular case, these sensory nerves are sensing a decrease in MAP. Okay, so what center should be kicking in? I'll give you a second to answer that. What center should be kicking in in this particular case when we have a decrease in MAP? I'm going to give you a few more seconds. Which one? That's right. So Jennifer has it, the sympathetic. Okay. The sympathetic nervous system should be stimulated in this particular case. Because if we have a decrease in MAP, we need a sympathetic response to increase MAP. And so what the sympathetic response will do, okay. So what the sympathetic response will do, so sympathetic. will increase heart rate and increase vasoconstriction. Okay, that's the early response that we see. Okay, so just remember, this is an early response. Okay, this is early. This is the first response. Okay, this is the kind of the first step of compensating for a decrease in MAP or cardiac output. Okay, what's the late response? Late response would be the stimulation of renin. Okay, the stimulation of renin would be a later response to compensate for decreases in mapping cardiac output. Okay, or decreases in perfusion. And stimulation of renin, so this is, we're talking about the renin, uh, renin angiotensin aldosterone system. We just did a video on that a couple weeks ago. You can search it in the group uh, after this one to, to kind of get familiar with it, but it's directly related to angiotensin. Okay, the angiotensin, specifically angiotensin 2, which is a potent vasoconstrictor. But that's a late response in the it's um, cardiac oscillatory centers in the medulla, creating a sympathetic response. First, early is increasing heart rate and vasoconstriction. Okay, and then by through alpha receptors, uh, specifically through vasoconstriction. Okay, and beta receptors through the the heart rate itself, and then the stimulation of renin to produce to create angi more angiotensin two, which creates more vasoconstriction and retention of water. So, aldosterone would be in effect would be introduced as well. Okay, those are the two things that your sympathetic response is going to create in a decrease in MAP or an or introduction of shock to cells. Okay, that's what's going to happen. Okay, so that basically that vasoconstriction is kind of the big thing that we're getting here. So vasoconstriction Okay, it increases peripheral resistance. All that means is that our vessels constrict 
and creates more pressure in those vessels. And if we're creating more peripheral resistance, it means that we're gonna have an increase in MAP, okay? Mean arterial pressure, which should solve our perfusion problem if we're compensating effectively. Okay, so that is how our body responds to a decrease in perfusion in cells, okay? If we have a decrease in MAP, this is what happens. Okay, you guys following me so far? If you have any questions, I'm just gonna start writing out the notes for my next part of this, which is how our body shunts blood. Uh, but if you have any questions, just pop them in here. I'll keep an eye out for questions here while I'm getting ready for the next part. Come back. There we go. Okay. Okay. So next question that people ask, how does the body shunt blood? Spell blood, right? How does the body shunt blood? That's a good question. Okay. And when does it shunt blood? Okay. Typically, um, typically when it comes to shunting blood, we were gonna do this more in a decompensating factor, okay, or decompensating situation, okay? So our body tries to increase the heart rate, tries to increase vasoconstriction, tries to retain water through aldosterone and the renin-angiotensin system. What happens when we try to, that all fails because we're still losing blood or we're still have obstruction or whatever the case may be, what happens? Well, our body recognizes that more are certain organs are more important than others. So for example, the skin isn't, and you know, my biceps aren't as important as keeping my kidneys, my liver and my brain and my heart perfused. Okay. So what it does is it shunts blood away from peripheral areas that are not as vitally functional or needed and keeping more important organs perfused for longer. Okay, so how does it do that? Well, every all around your cells and all around your body, you have capillary beds. Okay, you have capillary beds. So I'm just going to draw one capillary bed. So you have this is your capillary bed, so on and so forth. And then on the other side, you would have obviously the venous side. And that would go into your vein, obviously, and so on and so forth. Okay, so this is um, just a one capillary bed of billions that you have. Okay, and so are millions that you have. So what happens when you are in shock is that our body needs to shunt blood. So if you already have all these capillary beds, you need to you shunt blood in an effective way. So what it does is that it actually has a sphincter here. Okay or a rubber band in a sense, or maybe like a, a muscle tensioner, kind of just basically a circle around this vessel. So what it does, okay, in times of shock, when it needs to shunt blood, is it tightens, okay? It tightens, it clamps or constricts around this vessel, okay? And it constricts it so tight that blood can't get in to this capillary bed, 
Okay, so if it can't get into this capillary bed, blood would stay in you know larger blood vessels and not go into capillary beds. Okay, so if you have your you know I'm going to draw stick people so people don't laugh at me. They might laugh at me. Anyway. So if this is happening here. Okay, and that means that all this blood is going to stay in larger vessels. And if it stays in larger vessels, all it's going to do is going to arc back and come back to the core. Okay, and that's how our body shunts blood to back to the core. It simply constricts the capillary beds so that way our body shunts blood back to the core. Okay, that's how our body kind of maintains. If we're starting to decompensate seriously, like even further, this is how our body tries to maintain perfusion inside major organs, specifically the brain and the heart is the two one, the ones that are going to be significantly um, prioritized in these particular cases. The kidneys are usually what some of the first uh, of the major organs to, uh, to lose perfusion, um, which is why we start to look at, um, you know, kidney levels and stuff like that to see, how badly this person's in, have been hyperperfused or how badly they're in shock because you can see that with the way that the kidneys react uh, when they're hyperperfused. And so we see these kind of questions. So I got a couple of questions I'm going to answer here real quick. How do glucocorticoids help? I read somewhere where they help with vessel protection, but how? Like these bodies release glucocorticoids in shock states. I would have to look that guy up. I don't have a great answer for you um, in that particular question. Sorry, I'll have to look that one up and get back to you. I can't answer it effectively um, without actually looking up kind of the physiology with that. Sorry, Chris, I wish I had a better answer for you there. Uh, is this how the body responds to all five different types of shock? Yes. So, Dallin, this is how the body responds to all different types of shock, regardless of what type you're in, whether it's cardiogenic, obstructive, neurogen or um, neurogenic kind of an exception, um, distributive, like septic, anything like that, our body responds the exact same way. Our body responds the exact same way. Okay, those bands are called sphincters. I believe I called them sphincters in the beginning as well. Yeah. So yeah, their bands are called sphincters. So that's yeah, regardless of what type of shock we're in, this is how our body will respond to shock. Okay. Is there a me medical term for these bands? Yeah, sphincters. Oh, sorry, Brian, you were answering that question. I thought you were correcting me. But uh, yeah, these bands are called sphincters uh, around these capillary beds, and that's how they shunt blood. Good. Making sure. Cool. Okay. You guys are all caught up there. So we talked about a little about the stages of shock or kind of very quickly at the very beginning. Okay. So the stages of shock are something that you get tested on quite a bit, but not something that you need to know very specifically. Okay, you don't need to know everything about them. The big things that you need to know are just simply these things right here. Okay, so we have compensated. And decompensated. Okay, compensated and decompensated. Okay stages of shock. We have irreversible as well, but we're going to talk about these ones specifically. And so the biggest thing with these is that remember when we saw the changes in, when we had the decrease in MAP, okay, we had the decrease in MAP and then we had the sympathetic response, okay, there. And that increased the heart rate and that also um, increased, you know, vasoconstriction, 
So that increased vasoconstriction as well. So in this particular case, in a compensated state, okay, we're going to have an increased heart rate, as we just saw here. Okay, but that's essentially the major symptom we're going to see. And it's essentially the major symptom that we're going to see is an increase in heart rate. Um, but we're not going to see, okay, we're not going to see a decrease in blood pressure in this particular case. And we're not going to see a decrease in mentation. Okay, decompensated stot. Okay, so incompensated means that we're still, a, our body is able to still use its proper mechanisms in order to compensate for changes in MAP and, high, and perfusion, which means that our body is able to compensate enough that we're not actually, at this stage, we're not losing perfusion. Okay, we're not losing a lot of perfusion, or at least we're able to compensate for the perfusion that we're losing in this particular state in compensated states. Okay, decompensated. Okay, again, we have a decrease in MAP, okay, or a decrease in perfusion. Okay, and again, this is the key thing here. They're decompensated, so they're no longer compensating. So if they're no longer compensating, okay, you're still going to have an increase in heart rate. Okay, you're still going to have an attemptive increase in vasoconstriction, but just keep in mind that vasoconstriction is an active process. Okay, vasoconstriction is an active process. So any type of active process requires energy and ATP. It's something that we're on short supply of. And so, yes, we're gonna continue to try to vasoconstrict, but we're running out of energy. Okay, because now we're decompensating. We're running out of energy, which means that this active process of vasoconstriction is gonna start to falter. Okay, it's gonna start to falter. And now in a decompensated state, Okay, we're still going to see that increased heart rate, but we're going to start to see the decrease in BP, okay, and we're also going to see a decrease in mentation at later stages. Because remember, our body tries actively to try and maintain perfusion in both the brain and the heart, and basically in priority. Okay, so if you see a decrease in mentation in your patient, okay, it means that we're significantly hyperperfused. It means that we're starting to see hypoperfusion in brain cells, okay, which is the last place we'll likely see it other than the heart. Okay, but this is a big place that we're going to see it right here. Okay, this would mean that we're in a pretty significant decompensated state. A de decreased blood pressure is also a later finding in a decompensated state of state, stage of shock. Okay, so these are the two that we are concerned about as far as stages of shock. Okay, any questions with those? I'll give you a few seconds. Give me a thumbs up if you guys are good still. Making sure that we're good. Any questions, feel free to ask now. And we're going to start getting into the types of shock just to make sure everyone, uh, before we do that, I'm just going to make sure the um, we got everything covered here. Everyone's good. Okay, clear. I'm gonna do that every time. There we go. Okay, so now we're gonna get into the types of shock. So let's talk first.
hypovolemic shock. Okay, let's talk about first about hypovolemic shock. Okay, so hypovolemic shock. Yeah, there you go. Is low volume shock. Low volume shock. Okay, Crystal, you have a great question. Give me two seconds and I'll answer it. Okay, uh, low volume shock. Okay, so this is, or I guess more accurately, low fluid volume shock. So if we have a low fluid volume shock, that would be considered as in hypovolemic. So examples of low volume or fluid volume shock would be significant blood loss. Okay, uh, GI upsets. So significant diarrheas, vomiting would cause GI upset and eventually low volume shock because we're losing a lot of fluid that way and electrolytes. And heat exhaustion and heat stroke and stroke. I'm going to add heat stroke so you guys don't get confused. So heat stroke. So those are the types of things that can see that we can see with hypovolemic shock. Okay. And so with these guys, okay, with these particular guys, we can see low volumes. Okay. And so I'm going to build out something here. Okay. Let's make sure I'm drawing it properly big enough that we can see kind of what's going on here. And then we have, Okay, this is going out to the organs. Oops, this is supposed to happen. Then we have this guy go backing into the heart. Yeah, so oh, good question. Yeah, so severe burns would fall into this particular uh, case as well. Okay, severe burns, low volume shock for sure would fall into this. That was a good one. I should have added that one. Okay, so what we're having an issue with here is that we have some sort of break. Okay, we have some sort of break. I swear to God. Some sort of break. Okay, and that means that blood is spilling out. Okay, we're losing volume. Okay, that would be a blood loss example. If you guys caught that, um, that's the that would be some sort of blood loss example. Okay, and so that means that we have a low fluid volume problem. Okay, and so what really comes into play here is preload and afterload. Okay, preload and afterload. And this is due in perspective to the heart. Preload is due to fluid in ventricles. Okay, fluid in ventricles here before squeeze. Okay, and then afterload, okay, and this is just very general terms. Okay, just in very general terms, fluid 
in ventricles after squeeze. Okay, so give me a, a guess here. I have a couple questions I'm going to answer while you guys are guessing here and, and, and commenting. So what, with the fact that we have a low volume shock, do you think that we have a preload or an afterload problem? Comment down below and let me know. Do we have a preload or an afterload problem? Um, would anaphylaxis be relative hypovolemic? Um, anaphylaxis more falls under the distributive shock. So we're not have we do have a low volume, but it's not due to fluid leaving the entire body. So hypovolemic shock is more due to fluid leaving the body. Um, anaphylaxis is more of a distributive, which means the fluid is not in the vascular system, but it's still in the body. That was Sherry's question, uh, Crystal. So the um, the best way to explain the respiration, so why we have increase in respirations with shock, is due to chemoreceptors. So you have chemoreceptors, just as much as you have baroreceptors in the same locations, uh, but they are identifying uh, CO2, or elevated CO2. And so when we have elevated CO2, they send signals to our medulla in order to increase respirations. Okay, so we'll see technipia in these patients because of anaerobic metabolism producing excessive amounts of CO2 that need to be exhaled off. So that's why we see an increase in respirations is because those chemoreceptors that are identifying high CO2 is stimulating our medulla to cause increase in respirations. So hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, so Sherry, the difference between them is um, Distributive shock is more due to fluid leaving the vascular system, but it's still in the body. It's just surrounding cells. In hypovolemic shock, it's actually leaving the body itself. There's no excess fluid around cells in, like there is in distributive shock. So anaphylaxis is more in that category than it is in hypovolemic. Okay, so the answer to the question, do we have a preload or afterload problem with hypovolemic shock? And the answer is we have a preload problem. Okay, we have a decrease. Okay. We have a decrease in preload, which means we have decrease in fluid before the squeeze. Okay. So if we have decrease in fluid before the squeeze, it means we have a decrease in blood that's going to be squeezed through the aorta and through the arteries in order to perfuse organs. Okay. So we're going to have decreased organ perfusion due to the fact that we can't squeeze enough blood through the arteries and into the organs. Okay, so that is how hypovolemic shirt, uh, works as far as the pathophysiology is that we have a decrease in preload, so decrease of fluid before heart squeeze or ventricle squeeze, which means that we're going to have a lack of fluid, okay, a lack of cardiac output that's going to make it to the organs because we need preload in order to push it to the body. Okay, so that is hypovolemic shock. So how do we treat hypovolemic shock? So very simple. We have a lack of fluid. So the best thing that we can do in a lack of fluid situation is introduce fluid. 
Okay, so we talked about a trauma situation a couple days ago on a, uh, a call that uh, a stabbing victim that we talked about. That was a, a live that we did in the, the group. It's still up there. You guys can check it out. It was only a couple days ago. You can just go to albums and just click on videos. You'll find one of the first ones there and you can check it out there. Uh, and so we're just simply talking about what is really what we could do for these people is that if we have a lack of fluid, the best thing we can do for them is introduce fluid. Okay, so introducing fluids is the treatment typically for hypovolemic shock, at least the first line of treatment for hypovolemic shock, regardless if it's GI upset, blood loss, heat exhaustion, um, significant burns, all of them would require replenishment of fluids. Okay, perfect. All right, let's talk about the next one, and that is cardiogenic shock. Okay, so I'm gonna build kind of the same drawings I did last time. So we had the heart, and then we had the organs, And then the venous side. Okay. So a question that came out was, at one point do you introduce dopamine? In hypovolemic shock, it's rare to introduce a, a vasoconstrictor, or in, in your case, like an ionotrope plus vasoconstrictor in dopamine. Uh, we don't do it very often. Uh, and the reason being is that we need to introduce a significant amount of fluid in order to create vascular space or fill that vascular space. Uh, in order for dopamine to actually be effective. So that's because um, there's no point in squeezing vessels if there's no fluid in there. So typically, most physicians and our orders would be that we want to introduce at least uh, 20 mils by kilo times three before we consider some sort of vasoconstrictor in order to increase vascular tone to try and maintain uh, some, some blood pressure. So you're, you're introducing a significant amount of blood. Uh, or sorry, fluid before you're going to be squeezing the tank with, uh, with something like dopamine or levo. Good question. Okay. So cardiogenic shock. Okay. So cardiogenic shock. Okay. Is what we call pump failure. Pump failure or another way of saying it, I say muscle failure. Okay. Muscle failure. Okay, with cardiogenic shock. So basically, the biggest reason we're going to see this either is CHF, okay, long-term CHF, or, uh, or acute CHF, like acute attack of CHF, or an acute myocardial infarction. Okay, because both of these cause muscle death. Okay. They cause muscle death by um, basically by lack of perfusion, so decrease of perfusion. Okay, and that is all due to uh, either a clot in AMI, okay, acute myocardial infarction, or just muscle fatigue in CHF is going to cause a decrease in perfusion. 
Okay. They all both lead to muscle death. And if we have muscle death in say the left ventricle, okay, so we have muscle death here. Okay. Without that muscle, we can't squeeze. Okay. So going back to the preload and afterload, Okay, which one's going to be more affected? Which one of these would be more effect or more affected, preload or afterload in this particular case? Does massive PE fit in here? Massive PE fits more in obstructive shock, which we're talking about next. Cardiac contusion is going to be more obstructive shock, which we're going to talk about next. It's still a pump failure. It's very similar to cardiogenic shock, uh, but it's not actually cardiogenic shock in itself. Okay, this is going to be due to more interior of the muscle cell, okay, of the heart. Okay, so Chris and Mike, you're correct. So we would have a problem in afterload. Okay, we can fill this ventricle, okay, all we want. Okay, so we don't have a preload problem because we can get as much blood as we want in that ventricle. What we can't do is we can't squeeze it to the rest of the body. Okay, so we have an afterload problem because we can't squeeze this ventricle. And if we can't squeeze this ventricle, it means that it can't push blood in through the aorta and be able to perfuse the organs. So we're gonna have a decrease in perfusion due to pump failure, which is muscle death. Okay, pump failure, muscle death. And the reason I'm really emphasizing the muscle death is this is the biggest difference between um, a cardiogenic shock and obstructive shock, which we're going to talk about next. Because obstructive shock is a pump failure, but it's not due to muscle death of the actual heart. Okay, and so this is what's happening here. So we have fluid. Okay, we have fine enough fluid, but we don't have the ability to squeeze, which means that we're going to have fluid left over after the squeeze, which is afterload. Okay, so we have a decrease or sorry, actually more accurately, we have an increase in afterload, which is a problem, okay? Because if we have a lot of afterload after the heart squeezes, it means it's not squeezing very hard or the blood's not going anywhere, okay? That is cardiogenic shock, okay? So how would you treat this, okay? It really depends on the, the cause, okay? It really depends on the cause. Okay, so I mean, in a lot of cases, it's the, the end treatment for this, okay, a lot of cases is going to be for acute, specifically acute AMIs is going to be an angio, okay, an angiogram in order to pull that clot in order to reperfuse that area, uh, or a bypass in order to create more vessels and um, create more bypass through dead tissue and stuff like that in order to, you know, reperfuse muscle tissue. Um, but typically for an acute myocardial infarction, we're going to need an angio. CHF. Okay, so sometimes you have low cardiac outputs, okay? And when you have low cardiac outputs, something that would help in this particular case when we have a specific muscle squeeze problem is sometimes we'll introduce an inotrope, okay? Which is going to increase squeeze, okay? So for example, an inotrope would be Dubutamine, um, Minotrone, 
be another one. Okay, both of those are pretty specific inotrope medications. Okay, any questions with that guy? I'll give it a few seconds, take a sip of my tea, make sure you guys are following. So that's cardiogenic shock. Okay, excellent. So I'll clear my board. Okay, so let's talk about the elusive obstructive shock. Okay, obstructive shock. So remember, we talked about cardiogenic shock being a pump failure. Well, obstructive shock is also pump failure. Okay, it's also pump failure, pardon me, but cardiogenic, okay, so I'm just gonna put cardiogenic just to remind us, cardiogenic, that's what cardiogenic means, okay, the heart, remember, muscle death, okay, muscle death, that's what creates our pump failure in cardiogenic shock. In obstructive shock, it's not due to a muscle death, it's due to um, pressures, It's due to pressures. And so we have a few different styles, okay? So we're gonna talk about three specifically, okay? We're gonna talk about cardiac tamponade first. Okay, cardiac tamponade. So a cardiac tamponade, okay? Um, let's draw out my stuff here, okay? So cardiac tamponade and then I'm just going to get a full picture here so you guys can get a good look. So like this works for me. So if it works for me, I'm hoping it works for you. Organs. And bring this guy back. Okay. And so in a cardiac tamponade, what problem with it is I remember we have a pericardial sac that surrounds our heart. Okay. And what a cardiac tamponade is, is simply excess fluid that gets into this pericardial space. And the more and more, this is kind of a stretchy place. And so you can stretch a little bit. Okay. That's kind of the idea. So the whole purpose of a pericardial sac is to create you know, lack of, or reduce friction on the heart when it pumps, okay, because it does move when it pumps. And so this is supposed to reduce friction, okay? However, um, what happens here is when we have a cardiac tamponade and we have an increase in fluid, it increases pressure, okay? It increases pressure on the heart itself. And so it basically restricts Okay, it restricts the ability for the heart to collapse and retract because it needs to be able to squeeze and recover, squeeze and recover. If we have an increase in pressure, if we have an increase in pressure around the heart because of a cardiac tamponade or fluid accumulation around the heart, there's no ability, it might be able to squeeze, 
but it won't be able to recover completely before it needs to squeeze again. Okay, and so coming back to the preload and afterload question. Okay, which one's going to be affected in this particular case? What's going to be affected, okay, is typically both. Okay, our body or our um, right ventricle, okay, is not going to have time or ability to relax enough in order to fill with blood. Okay, and there's not enough room for it to really collapse either. Okay, so the blood essentially in this particular case, it kind of stays stagnant. Okay, for lack of better terms, it stays stagnant. Okay, so we have a decrease in preload and increase in afterload. Okay, which is obviously not good, which means a decrease in cardiac output. Okay, and decrease in cardiac output leads to a decrease in MAP. And a decrease in MAP leads to a decrease in organ perfusion. Okay, so that's cardiac tamponade. Okay, let's talk about another one that's in the instructive shock family. Tension pneumo. Pneumo. Thorax. Okay, I'm just going to get rid of a couple things here just so we can uh, kind of see what we're doing here. More due to the lungs, so we don't really need a heart for this one. Okay, so tension pneumos. Okay, build some lungs. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> okay, and so same thing we have a okay, we have an area surrounding the lungs as well. Okay, and so when a tension pneumothorax occurs, we're talking about increasing pressure. Oh, I'm gonna build the heart because the heart does come into play here a little bit too. Okay, set the heart right there in the meniscinum. Okay, and so what happens here? Like we have a break, say, here. Okay, in the peritoneum, or sorry, not the peritoneum, but the um, um, oh, I can't even remember the name right now. Uh, I'll keep talking until someone corrects me because I'm sure someone will know the word, and I can't think of it off the top of my head for some right now. Um, but they'll have a break in the wall. And it closes the lungs. And so I still can't think of the word. I'm literally laying on you guys for this one. And so air escapes, okay, into this particular area. Okay, air should not be in here. Okay, this is basically room for the lungs to expand. Pericardium is around the heart. So this isn't the pericardium. Um, pleura space. Yeah, that works for me. So this is like we're getting basically air in this pleura space. Okay. And it shouldn't be here. And so when we get air into this pleura space, we start to get an increase in pressure. See this in the words coming up a lot, not in the same, it's not in the same anatomical location, but it's here. Okay. We have an increase in pressure. Okay. And so as air and air accumulates, it creates tension giving its name, an increase in pressure, 
pushes on this lung and eventually it'll collapse. But it'll continue to put pressure on and eventually put pressure on the heart and put tension on the heart. And then the tension on the heart doesn't allow for the heart to pump properly. Okay, this is where we see obstructive shock and tension pneumos. Okay, where we have a physical direct pressure on the heart creating obstruction, okay, and pump failure because an increase in pressure. Okay, that's how a tension pneumothorax creates an obstructive shock. And so we would see a decrease in preload, we would see an increase in afterload, and again, the heart or the blood essentially stays stagnant. Okay, which leads to decreasing MAPs and decreasing perfusion and organ perfusions and voila, you have yourself an obstructive shock. Okay, any questions with that guy? There's one more that I want to talk about in the obstructive family. I'm getting better at drawing. I know you don't think it is, but I think I am, but I am getting better at drawing, believe it or not. Okay. Boom, look at that heart. See, told you I'm getting good at drawing. Okay, and then I'm going to totally ruin it by drawing on it. Okay, I'm just going to cross section here and so you have the right ventricle, okay, over here. And so the right ventricle, we know, pumps through the pulmonary artery. Just like so, and it goes over to the lungs. Okay, and so then this goes like such. Okay, so I'm gonna, oops, I should get rid of tension pneumo because we're not talking about tension pneumo anymore. We're talking about pulmonary embolisms. Okay, talking about pulmonary embolisms. Okay, is another form of obstructive shock. Okay. So another form of obstructive shock. I just got someone saying they have no sound. Give me a thumbs up. I'm going to stop just for a sec. Make sure you guys have sound. So give me a thumbs up. Make sure you guys can still hear me because I don't want to continue. You guys can't. You guys are good? Okay, cool. Just wanted to make sure because there's no point in me talking if you guys can't hear me. Cool. So... Pulmonary embolisms, okay, pulmonary embolisms. So we're talking about massive pulmonary embolisms specifically, okay? We're not talking about a pulmonary embolism that gets into uh, actual pulmonary circulation and kind of you know, puts pressure there. Yes, it can create an obstructive shock, but it would take a long time. We're talking about something that can actually get stuck in potentially the pulmonary artery itself or very close to, you know, okay, like in there kind of idea, basically an entry into large, you know, vessels around the lungs itself. Okay. Okay. Um, so what happens here, okay, is that we get this clot. Okay. Again, usually due to DVTs or whatever the case may be, floats in the left or right ventricle, pumps through the pulmonary artery, it gets jammed in large circulation of the lungs. Okay. And so I'm going to answer that question in a sec, Lee. Um, so when it gets jammed, okay, what happens to the blood? Blood can't get into the lungs. OK? 
Okay, blood can't get into the lugs. So they end up back into the pulmonary artery and into the pulmonary or the right ventricle. Okay, so looking back at preload and afterload, we're going to have a fine amount of preload. Okay, we're going to have all the blood we want in the world, okay, inside the ventricle here. So we have fine preload, but we also have a significantly increased afterload. Okay, again, afterload being blood after the fact, okay, after the ventricle contraction which is not a good thing. We don't want lots of afterload. We want that blood to move to uh, other spaces. And so if we have an increasing in afterload, it means we have a significant obstruction somewhere. And that's what's happening here. Okay, we have a significant afterload. So we have a significant amount of blood that's staying inside the right ventricle because of a major obstruction in pulmonary embolisms. Again, due to pressure buildup, pushing back on that right ventricle. Okay, that's another form of obstructive shock. Okay, so all three of those that we talked about, pulmonary embolisms, tension pneumo, and cardiac tamponade, all have evidently made the pump fail, and it was due to pressure on the heart or pressure on the pump, okay? And a cardiogenic shock was due to muscle death, okay? Pump failure due to muscle death, okay? Obstructive shock is pump failure due to pressures. Okay, uh, Brian, that's a great point that you bring up. So obstructive shock is more of a mechanical fix. So for example, cardiac tamponade, pericardial synthesis, which I got to see uh, recently, which was kind of cool. And pericardial synthesis is something that we can do to relieve the fluid that's around the heart. So that's a mechanical thing that we can fix. Tension pneumo, we can dart the chest, needle decompression. Absolutely. Pulmonary embolisms were kind of hooped. Uh, but these are all mechanical fixes. That's right. And so a lot of the time, these patients will go into a PEA uh, due to, you know, stagnant blood. But unfortunately, but fortunate thing is that we do have things that we can, specifically intention pneumo that we can fix. Okay. But yes, um, obstructive shock is more of a mechanical pressure problem than, a, than it is muscle death that we saw with cardiogenic shock. Uh, Lee, in severe shock states, how accurate is SpO2 pulse monitors? So great question. The answer is, is not, not very, okay? And it would depend on the, the type of shock or the level of shock that they're in or state of shock they're in. So if they're in a compensated shock, then you find a, the SpO2 will be perfectly fine, a uh, way of, you know, monitoring peripheral perfusion. But as shock develops worse and worse and worse, you're going to find the SpO2 to be uh, very inaccurate or won't even pick up a monitor because we have a lot of blood shunting and decompensated decom shocks. Okay, so when we start seeing more decompensated shocks and we start seeing that blood shunting more to the core, then that SpO2 monitor is not going to pick up anything. If anything, that could be a good signal to you that they're pretty sick, that if you put that monitor on and all of a sudden it's not reading at all, that should be a good indicator for you to say, okay, this guy has significant blood shunting because my SpO2 monitor won't even pick up a, a peripheral pulse, okay, or a uh, peripheral perfusion. That is a good indicator itself. So just get throw, if you throw it on, or if you have a shock patient, you throw it on, just make sure you do because just, yeah, be like, oh, this guy is shunting blood or this guy's in shock. I'm not going to get an SpO2. That's not a really good practice. I'd say throw on an SpO2 monitor and if you don't get a SpO2 from that guy, that's just telling you that, yeah, he does have blood shunting. And that's all it can really tell you at that point, which is diagnostic in itself, in my opinion. 
can I quickly review the preload and afterload for PE? Yeah, so the, we have a fine amount of preload, okay? Because we can get as much blood as we want here. We have fine blood return to that right ventricle. What we don't have is the ability to squeeze that blood anywhere, okay? So we don't have the ability to squeeze this blood anywhere. This actual muscle wall is fine, okay? But given its obstructive nature, the fact that we have such a large clot somewhere in pulmonary circulation, that means that this blood can't go anywhere. Okay, it'll end up backing up this way, okay, into the inferior and superior vena cavas eventually. Okay, so yeah, that's where the issue is that we have an increase in afterload, okay, because this blood can't go anywhere other than backwards. Okay, having an increase in afterload is a bad thing because that means that blood isn't going anywhere after a squeeze. Okay, in this particular case, it's because of a clot in pulmonary circulation literally blocking blood from moving into the lungs. Does that make more sense, Sherry? Okay. Losing people yet? Okay. It's clear for. What would lung sounds be with a PV? Um, it would really depend on. It would really depend on the location, but typically. When you have a, uh, when typically when you have a PE, you're going to start to see your fluids at the location of that PE initially because we're going to have a increase in hydrostatic pressures. No, then you wouldn't because you would have. It would really depend. I, I'd have to think about more about it, but it would really depend on the PE itself. But typically, you're not going to get. You're going to get a, a ton of technipia, so a ton of increased respirations. Uh, with a significantly decreasing SpO2. You know what I've also noticed is if I put an SpO2 on someone and put oxygen on someone, I notice that their SpO2 will actually rise to like 99% for a few minutes. But if, if I take that SpO or that oxygen off for like 30 seconds, their SpO2 plummets into the 60s. Okay, that's what I've noticed with PEs specifically. Okay. Um, What's the best term tool to determine PE? I think Ron really hit it right on the head is uh, with a good history, um, acute onset. And this would be a good one to actually do a, a full class on. Uh, but yeah, like an acute onset, shortness of breath, um, stagnant periods or time, long times of sitting still, uh, pains in the extremities over periods of days, which would signify more of a DVT. So all that can be found in more of a history. So Ron really hit it on the head is a good history with these patients would be ideal uh, in order to find out if it is a PE because it can be very difficult to identify. Yeah, potentially if it's a large enough PE, uh, yeah, you can see distended neck veins. Uh, that's just simply fluid backing up right here, right? Going into the inferior and superior vena cavas and then backing up into those, um, into those distension or into those veins in the neck. Totally. Yeah, you can see jugular vein distension um, in PEs. Again, these guys are going to plummet pretty quickly given the, the nature of their PE. Um, so if you do see it, it's going to be a pretty quick sign. You're going to be seeing it pretty much peri-arrest. Okay, those are good. Clear that drawing. So let's go to distributive shock.
Okay, distributive shock. So distributive shock is basic. We're talking about oops, uh, sepsis and anaphylaxis. Sepsis and anaphylaxis is what we're talking about here. Sepsis and anaphylaxis are two forms of distributive shock. And so here's the best way I can explain what distributive shock is. Okay. So the difference between this and hypovolemic shock is we do have a lack of volume. Okay. Okay. We have, do have a lack of volume, but what's different is where the volume goes. Okay. In hypovolemic shock, it left the body completely. In sepsis anaphylaxis, it doesn't. Okay, I'm just going to create cells. This is a blood vessel, and then the, what I'm drawing right now are cells. Okay, and so what happens in these particular cases is distributive shock is simply fluid leaving the vascular system and going into extracellular areas. Okay, and so what happens in sepsis and anaphylaxis is that we have uh, vasodilation due to a few different factors depending on the cause. So sepsis is usually due to nitrics, nitric acid. Okay, that causes vasodilation and sepsis when we're responding to a, an immune attack. Same with anaphylaxis, we'll see a nitric acid, acid, nitric acid release that causes vasodilation. And that vasodilation, okay, anytime that we vasodilate, then that means that we are going to increase permeability. Okay, increase permeability, which means that we're going to basically create let me do a different color. For lack of better terms, leaky vessels. Okay, that means that fluid and blood okay, is going to be able to leave the vascular system into extracellular areas very easily. Okay, so we have an increase in permeability, which means it gives us leaky vessels, which means that fluid leaves the vascular system and gets into extracellular areas. It's all due to nitric release, okay, in these particular states. Okay, nitric release is part of, is somewhat part of the immune response. This is essentially what that is. If you want to learn more about this response and distributive shock, our sepsis class inside the membership is a great place to learn. We, we cover this in, in great detail there. And there's guys that are actually watching this video right now that have seen that class and can attest to that. So, um, so that's basically what's happening. Now, why is this a problem? Okay, why is this a problem? Is this, is that when you get fluid accumulation, okay, you get fluid accumulation around cells. Okay, what happens is that we remember we have red blood cells that are not blue, but I'm drawing them blue. Okay, red blood cells are trying to deliver oxygen to these cells. Okay, they're trying to deliver oxygen to these cells. Now, the problem is, is that oxygen doesn't diffuse as well through significant amount of fluid. Okay, it doesn't do as well. Okay, it doesn't do as well getting through fluid. Same way as oxygen, you know, in a uh, pulmonary edema type of patient, oxygen doesn't do well trying to get through all that fluid in the lungs to try and, you know, 
oxygenate the red blood cells that are waiting for them on the other side of the pulmonary circulation. Okay, same thing in the cellular area. If we have too much fluid around the cells, same thing happens with the oxygen is that it can't get to the cells very well, which means that these cells that have a bunch of fluid around them are going to be hypoperfused. I'm going to put that somewhere down here. Okay, they're going to be hyperperfused. Hypo or perfused. And it's simply because oxygen can't get through this water and this fluid nearly as well. And that means these cells are going to be, they're just not going to get the oxygen delivery that they need, which means that they're going to be hypoperfused, which is distributive shock. Okay, because that fluid is now surrounding the cells, causing basically a traffic jam not allowing for that oxygen to get to those areas. Okay, and so how do we treat this? Uh, it really depends on the cause. Obviously, we're talking about two significant different types of pathogens or pathology here when it comes to anaphylaxis and sepsis. But typically, um, with anaphylaxis, obviously, okay, epi, okay, is your kind of your mainstay. Sepsis, okay, depending on, again, uh, the pathology, again, watch the sepsis class. will give you a much better idea. I'm not going to get deep into sepsis because that would take me another hour and a half. Uh, but sepsis typically, um, some fluids, okay, um, vasoconstrictors, okay, and then end stage. What we really need is, if it's um, bacterial in origin, antibiotics. Okay, and so that's basically what we're going to see here. Okay, that is distributive shock, is fluid that's not leaving the body, but leaving the vascular system and surrounding the cells, making it difficult for oxygen to get to the cells, which creates a hypoperfused cell, which creates your distrib distributive shock. Okay, any questions with that guy? I had my one foot underneath my leg for most of this class and it's dead asleep and it does not feel good. You guys are good. Excellent. Okay. I got one more thing to talk about. Neurogenic shock. Neurogenic shock. Let's talk about this guy. So what is it? Okay. This is, again, what we talked about at the very beginning. It's typically due to trauma. It is due to trauma. Okay. Specifically trauma to the spinal cord. Okay. And so why this is an issue is that remember when we go back to the pathophysiology or the the compensating factors of shock remember we had the heart we had the aortic arch okay and then we had those baroreceptors glossopharyngeal then we had the uh, vagal nerve going to you know the medulla okay now here's the problem what area do these nerves have to pass in order to get to the medulla? Okay, what area does it need to go into to get to the medulla? 
And the answer needs to go through the spine. Okay, it needs to go through the nervous system of the spine. And so if we have a spinal cord trauma, specifically more in the cervical spine, okay, then we're going to have a dysfunction of these cells or the dysfunction of these nerves. So these nerves can't make it to the medulla. Okay, remember the medulla is controlling the sympathetic and parasympathetic tone of these cells. Okay, or of this uh, of the system, the entire pumping system. Okay, so if we have no ability to send messages to the medulla saying we need sympathetic tone, then the medulla is simply going to assume everything's okay and not create a compensating factor. Okay, and so that's what happens here is that the parasympathetic, okay, basically takes over. Okay, it takes over. Okay, it takes over. Okay, and what, that, what happens when the parasympathetic takes over, it overpowers the sympathetic nervous system. Okay. okay, remember we have, okay, so this is para. We have heart rate and decreasing vascular tone on this side. And then on this side, we have the sympathetic. We have increase in heart rate, an increase in vascular, oops, increase in vascular tone or vasoconstriction, uh, but this one's starting to overpower. Okay, this one's starting to overpower the sympathetic tone, which means that we're going to start seeing a decrease in heart rate, okay, and a decrease in vascular tone, which would lead to a decrease in BP, blood pressure, without compensation. Okay, basically a normal heart rate. Okay, a totally normal heart rate. Okay, simply because our ability to send messages to the medulla to stimulate sympathetic response is altered. It's, it's broken. And so our body cannot introduce a compensating factor by increasing heart rate and vascular tone. And so we're going to see a decrease in BP. Okay, because the parasympathetic system is going to overpower the sympathetic system because we can't send signals. So we're going to see a decrease in BP with a pretty much normal heart rate. So we're not seeing any compensating factors whatsoever. Okay, so what we need to do okay, for treatment, we can do fluids for one, but we can also do something like levo or dopamine. Okay, because basically what these are going to do is they're going to bypass the needs for sympathetic response. Okay, because sympathetic responses release dopamine. Sympathetic responses release epinephrine and norepinephrine. So we're instead of leaving it up to the sympathetic nervous system to release those, we're just going to introduce them through IV. And this is going to create the sympathetic response that we need. So that's neurogenic shock. It's a spinal trauma where the Sensory nerves that are trying to send messages to the medulla can't make it to the medulla in order to create sympathetic tone, which means the parasympathetic nervous system is going to take over and create a decrease in heart rate, decrease in vascular tone. So that leads to our symptoms of a decrease in blood pressure without any compensating factors. That is neurogenic shock. So that is the end of the presentation 
as formal presentation from me. So I'm going to leave it up to you guys for some questions. So I'm going to bring it over to Facebook here and see. There we go. And see if you have any questions. I'm just going to refresh here. Any questions at all? You guys are feeling good. Good review. Excellent. Glad. You guys are feeling good. Oh, um, Andrew, uh, DIC is a whole other video. I'd rather do it in a whole other video because I'm, I'm starting to kind of getting into other pathological states. Uh, but essentially what DIC would be, we actually talk about the DIC in the sepsis class that we did in the membership. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, so DIC is basically microclots that, um, that are breakoffs of other embolisms and stuff like that. So I, I'd rather do that in a whole other class. We, we talked about it pretty extensively in the sepsis class because that's a pretty big complication of sepsis. Um, so check that one out if you haven't already. The, the sepsis class because we talk specifically about DIC in that guy. Celia, you're good. Is there a difference in, in skin color and warmth below the injury? Yes. Okay, yes, there would be because, again, we don't have the ability to compensate. Okay, so that means that we would have warm skin below the injury of the, of the spine. Okay, because we don't have uh, the ability to compensate and create sphincter tone in order to you know, bring fluid and bring blood back into the core. And so that means that our body would be fairly warm. Totally, yeah, neurogenic shock. If there was a combination of neurogenic shock and hypovolemic shock, yeah, you would have a lot of trouble and that's definitely possible. Um, and you can have it, sure, okay, in a major trauma. And so absolutely neurogenic shock would cause hypovolemic shock to be worse as there'd be no compensation for that. Great question. I think that's good. I'll, uh, I think I'll leave it there. If you guys are feeling good. Uh, if you have more questions, comment below, message us. We'd be happy to chat. And, uh, you guys, enjoy your night. Hopefully, this is a great class. This class is going up on the membership area right away. I'm going to break it up and put it in the shot class, and it's also going to be on the live recordings uh, area in the membership. If you guys aren't members yet and you're interested and you love this class and it was really helpful, we do these um, every two weeks right now. We're working on getting it up to every week. Um, and so you're going to see a lot of these classes uh, promoted in the group that you guys are more than willing to join at any time. So if you guys are interested in um, – in becoming members, uh, I, I strongly suggest messaging us and asking about that. Uh, I'll put the link in the uh, in the description to the 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 fate or the membership area, and you can enroll and you can attend these classes weekly if you'd like. And there's tons of stuff in there. If you guys are preparing for your exams, uh, we have a full exam prep for National Registry, ACP, um, COPR exams, everything, as well as continue education all across Canada, uh, minus Ontario. We're working on that. And then we're also 
very close to national registry continued continuing education as well. So again, um, hopefully this is helpful for you guys. I really hope that this uh, hit the nail on the head and it kind of helped you really understand uh, shock in a more different way or a deeper way. And uh, I hope to see you again very soon. Again, we're doing live classes quite a bit. We're doing a um, uh, we're doing a toxidrome run on Wednesday is what we're doing. A toxidrome one on Wednesday that is coming up. And so hopefully you enjoyed it and uh, we'll see you soon. Take care. Hi again, everyone. Jeff here with Mastery Medics and welcome again to my office. So thank you so much for taking our class. I truly hope you like learn you know at least a few new things so like i said this is my home office and this is where i built most of mastery medics myself so we've gone from you know teaching a few dozen emts and paramedics just in alberta in 2016 to now teaching thousands of students that are across the world so i wanted to personally offer you to join those thousands of students and become a mastery medics member if you give me just a few minutes of your time i'll show you exactly what you get from us all right so let's show you the student dashboard Okay, this dashboard will help you navigate through all the courses and choose which one you want to do next. We've also got a few categories on the side, and this will help you identify which area you should start in. All the courses are obviously different in length, but we like to make sure that each video inside these courses is anywhere between 3 to 10 minutes long. So this allows you to easily jump in and watch one or two videos without losing your spot. So it doesn't matter if you only have you know, 30 minutes a week, or you have 30 hours a week, the format that we've adopted allows you to work at your own pace and you know, take on as much content as you'd like. Okay? There's approximately 35 courses inside the student dashboard. However, that number is always growing, so you can expect new courses and classes to pop up. The fall down with having so many courses is that it can actually be overwhelming, and that's why we've created what we call the success path. Okay, so this success path is an interactive worksheet that helps you determine what category and what courses you should start with. Okay? So we recommend following the success path instead of just picking one or two courses to start with. And you could also return to that success path anytime that you're lost and you want to figure out what new course that you want to do when you finished your any of your previous ones that you found that you needed to do. Oh, and one more thing. Mastermax is optimized to work not only on your computers, but on phones and tablets. So feel free to take us to go on the go as well. Some people like to log into Mastery Medics multiple times a day to check out quick classes or do some flashcards before they have a big test. Others log in only a few times a week to attend our live classes or to maybe finish off a worksheet that they're working on. And what's great is no matter how you use Mastery Medics, we've created a dashboard that will work no matter how you prefer to use it. The dashboard has four main sections. First, the continue learning button. These help you pick up a course exactly where you left off. Next, we have our core courses, and this is where the bulk of our content is. So whether you're just starting out as an EMTB or you're already an advanced care paramedic, there is always something to learn here. Next, we have our exam prep section. So if you click here, you'll find different types of exams, such as the ACP exam, NOCP or the NREMT exams. Okay, they all have their similarities, but also some differences, which is why we broke it up for you so there's less confusion. Our last section is the live classes section where you'll find past recordings of long form exclusive classes here, as well as past Facebook live classes in this area here. 
All past classes come with a video and audio recording depending on what's more convenient for you, as well as a worksheet to complete. Don't forget, these worksheets come with a completion certification, which you can submit for continuing education credits. Okay, so let's quickly show you inside of a course. So the courses are laid out quite simply. You have your intro here, the bulk of your video lessons here, and then after the video lessons, you have your flashcards and online worksheets to complete. You notice we don't have any multiple choice exams in these courses, and that's because you don't, we don't really believe that they're actually effective at helping you retain information. So we've actually only saved them for the exam preparation area, since you obviously will need them in there. Well, that's everything you need to know for the dashboard. Remember, if you have any questions or there is a problem you want to report, click the messenger icon in the corner here. So we had the option to wrap this up and sell it in one big expensive package, uh, but we made a commitment to make sure it was affordable for anyone who really wanted it. So we went with a subscription model, no commitment, easy to find out if it's right for you. So you can become a Master Medics member for $30 per month. Or if you decide you want to work with us longer than a few months, our one or two year subscription might be more fitting at $199 or $349.99. All of our subscriptions come with a 30 day money back guarantee. So if we're not the right fit for you, we'll send you every penny of your money back. Also, if you made it this far, then I'm going to offer you even a better deal on the membership. If you become a member in the next 10 minutes, I'm going to give you either the one-year membership for only $150 or the two-year membership for $250. So either $50 off or even better, $100 off. If you're jumping on this opportunity, use the code MASTER1YEAR for the one-year subscription or MASTER2YEAR for the two-year subscription when you're checking out on our website. All of our plans have our 30-day money-back guarantee. Thank you again for your time, and I truly hope you enjoyed our class. Stay safe out there.